Hey, it's Bob Stoffer. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Oilers Now ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer, weekdays at noon on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad. We return to Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer. Brought to you by Digitex. Office supplies at huge savings? Yeah, Digitex does that. D I G I T E X dot C A on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad. It's 134 in Edmonton. Bob Stoffer, Brendan S. Scott with you. And uh, normally on Wednesdays at 12.35, we hook up with the NHL Network's Brian Lawton, but we had a chance to get Ethan Moreau on today to uh, talk a bit about the Oilers' playoff run in 2006 and the building of that team. And, you know, they're a very overachieving group the, the previous uh, several years going into that 05-06 season. So Brian was kind enough to move to this slot, and we appreciated him uh, taking time to join us. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Bob. Always happy to move for Ethan. That was an incredible run they were on that year. It was, uh, and there were, was it Pat Burns who said goaltending 70% of hockey, unless you don't have it, then it's 100% of hockey? Pretty sure that's a Pat Burns, because they were a different team after they got the alley cat and goal by the name of Dwayne Rolison. Like he, and it didn't happen overnight for him, like in his career, nor even that year when he came over. But, uh, you know, I've had I've had Ken Holland tell me point blank, the separation between the two teams got mitigated once Edmonton got Rolison. So it kind of started in goal to a certain extent come playoff time. Absolutely. And uh, was that the series when Andrew Ladd? Yes. Uh, yeah, Carolina game yeah, game one. Um, yeah. It was when, an, uh, outs- an outside drive. Yeah. An outside drive. Matt Green and uh, Marc-Andre Bergeron were on defense, and Green gave up the outside drive to Ladd, who drove hard to the hole. And uh, and then uh, Bergeron, uh, Bergeron, actually, I'm, I want to get it right here. Now, now I have to think of the play. Anyways, there was the collision and goal that knocked Rollison out of the series. And Mac T was alternating between Ty Conklin and UC Mark, and I'm thinking he was, you know, obviously assuming he was never going to have to. So he just kept on rotating those guys, and was Conklin was in as a backup. And then there was the malfunction on the junction uh, on the eventual game winner with about a minute and a half left in game one. This was after Alish Hemsky's Brian. Alish Hemsky, underrated play. He scored an unbelievable goal in that game where he walked their D and uh, drove hard to the net like he often did. Two nondescript franchises, you know, it's not L.A. and New York playing, it's not the Maple Leafs and uh, Boston, but nonetheless, it just goes to show you, in a league that wants, and Gary hates the word parity, so we'll use the term competitive balance, you're going to have playoffs like that, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely, and that was certainly one of them. And you know what? It was a really entertaining series. I was an agent still then, representing Hedekin on Carolina, Andrew Ladd, a lot of players. And I do remember that series well. That's why you just kind of jogged my memory. I remember everybody on the Oilers team. And you know, Bergeron, uh, ba- Torres, yeah. Ryan Smythe, uh, Stahl. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that one just sticks out in my mind, probably because of the uniqueness of what you just said. It wasn't those two powerhouse teams that maybe we've seen in the past. You mentioned Andrew Ladd, fourth overall pick in his draft year out of the Calgary Hitman. Uh, had a pretty good career, had to work his way back into the NHL. 
Was he maybe one of those guys that as the game changed, it maybe moved away a bit from his type of style, do you think? Uh, I think it did. Andrew was such a unique uh, human being. The backstory of how he grew up in Vancouver and, and the work his family did, the humility that that guy has, not even being drafted, he's drafted here. I, I feel like he was drafted fourth overall after being passed up that first year. Uh, just an incredible guy. But, yeah, the, the, some of the injuries have slowed him down. He's played the game the right way always. It takes a toll on you. Uh, you know, not sure what the future would hold for him. Obviously, his name was rumored when the Minnesota Wild was talking about a potential swap between Ladd and Zach Parisi. Right. But uh, just, just a terrific human being, Andrew Ladd, a real winner. Not surprised to see him go on and win championships with Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brett Hedekin, who does color now in the San Jose broadcast, that guy could skate. And what would it be like to be like the third best skater in his family, given that he's married to Christy Yamaguchi, who spent so much time in the Royal Glenora here in Edmonton? <laughs> but he was a spectacular skating. Very, uh, uh, he, he was a guy that uh, the, the women really liked as well, as I recall. Like he was a very popular player. <laughs> Uh, whenever they did the polls, sexiest guys in the NHL, good-looking dude, but just a terrific guy as well, as, isn't he? Uh, good-looking guy, probably just a little bit bigger version of Connor McDavid, but very similar body types, these guys. I spoke to Hedy the other day. He's he's one of my very good friends as a former client. Um, a lot of people don't know Brett Hedekin was a forward when he started college hockey. And what a defenseman he turned out to be. It's, it's really an incredible story. But uh, one of the most gifted skaters in that era. Uh, not necessarily a magician offensively once he got over the blue line. Right. But really understood the, well, uh, the game well defensively. And a tremendous, he was a transition D before we talked about transition D. He really, truly was. So, Brian, look, you, you mentioned the agency side of things, and this is not a labor stoppage, okay, what we're going through right now with the pandemic. Jerry Johansson was on last week, talked about the fact that everybody's got to work together. Um, however, there has been some tracer fire and some concerns that have been brought up uh, from some of the players uh and in some cases, they're guys that would be playing for playoff spots. In other cases, they might be guys that know they're out of it. Um, but where I'm going with this is, you I mean, you know the PA a bit. At times, there's been an adversarial relationship. They're having ongoing discussions as we speak. Do you think there would be 100% from all the respective agents who, of course, uh, guide their players a hundred percent agreement that they're going to have to work with the league moving forward uh, in terms of doing what's necessary to to uh, benefit the industry long term. Uh, no doubt about it. And you know, I was one of the players in '92 that was a player rep that helped to negotiate when the players went on strike. And people often ask me about that. And there was such a great group of players. Wayne Gretzky was one of those guys and was more vocal than people would ever know. Wayne always, you know, did the exact perfect thing every time. He was a great, you know, face of the National Hockey League forever. But uh, there was a lot of great guys. And, and Gretz stands out. Brad McCrimmon. Um, 
you know, we had a real fight on our hands back then, but that right. was a different time. Players are much uh, better taken care of in today's game, and I think they recognize that, and I think that's why ultimately you're going to see everybody come together and work together, especially at this difficult time. Now, there was a piece put out recently by Kurt Overhart. You know, and Kurt is talking about how escrow is too high, this, that, and the other thing. Um, I'm a former player, former player agent. That's the deal that the players signed. Sometimes I don't quite understand why they're a little bit mystified as to why escrow is so high. Uh, It's almost like it hasn't been explained to them. And yet players are still very well paid. Everybody would like to be paid more. But um, Kurt Overhart's piece was basically saying we got to get, you know, we could have a franchise player. You know, let's take Connor McDavid and just stick him over here and his money won't count against the cap. And, And there's all kinds of different ideas. But all I really heard is that players would like to have a higher percentage of the revenue. And that's okay. Um, but the story was just kind of a dressed-up version of that. For me, I didn't quite get it, is what I'm saying. If players okay. think they're not getting a fair share, then they should fight for that. Um, but I will tell you, Bob, that most of the players I talk to, they're humble people. They love the game. They feel privileged to have the opportunity to play. Um, it's just not the environment it was in. We were a cantankerous bunch. Pugilistic, you could say, to quote Brian Burke back at that time, but we knew that the disparity between being treated fairly and not fairly was great, and it was easy to fight for it. I don't think that's the case now. I think everybody would be best served to work together and come up with solutions that work for both sides. I know that the uh, if we could potentially get a restart to this season, that some players brought up concerns about being away from their family, and, and I don't know if you heard the conversation with Bill Daly that we had on Friday. But he addressed that and said they would find some mechanism if we could indeed play. And I still think it's a long shot we're playing. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a positive guy, but I'm a little bit concerned uh, uh, that we we are going to get a chance to get up and play. So Bill addressed that area. What would you say to the people that would say, well, Brian, the players basically have got like 93% of their money for the season already. I think they held back like a six or seven day uh, Jack, the, and the listeners know the the players only get paid during the regular season every two weeks, and they didn't take the last check for the first week of April or whatever. Um, so a lot of people text the show and say, why would the players come back uh, and play if they've already received X amount of money? There's concerns about family, uh, concerns about some players that might have pre-existing conditions that could be challenged with COVID. What would you say to that? Uh, I'd say I understand that. There are a lot of concerns. Um, The one element that I would say is not fairly represented in your recounting there is just that, yes, the players have, I believe they've received 88% of their salary. Okay, yep. But as I was referencing earlier, they don't get to keep that 88%. The NHL already has 14% in escrow, and if we don't play again, it looks like there's a potential of a, certainly another 15%, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was 20% of their salary that they'll actually end up having to give back. So you're talking about a potentially 26 
to 34% escrow, that's a lot of money for anybody to have to give back, and that's tough to swallow. So the argument to play would be that if we come back and play as a league, then we'll probably chop a good 15 or 20% of that off, or in the player's case, they'll be able to keep 150000 more of every million dollars they make, basically. That's what I'm saying, and it may be 200000 So that's the reason why players would come back and do it. Uh, Drew Doughty's had a few statements out there. Drew Doughty makes like $11 bucks. For him, if it ends up being... 15 to 20 percent you're talking about a million five to roughly two two of money back to drew dowdy to come back and play probably somewhere between seven and 12 more games now a lot of the listeners out there would probably say well that's crazy why would drew dowdy want to come back and play uh i don't know i don't know if it's been explained fully i'd like to think for sure it has been uh, maybe Drew just has enough money he doesn't care. I don't think it's that. I do think players never lose sight of the fact that no matter how good you are, you can only do this for a limited amount of time. And there is a strong urgency to want to make as much money as you can in that time that you have because when it's over, it's over. It's very rare that a player is going to go on and maybe be like a Steve Eisenman who's – potentially making $5 million as a general manager. When hockey's over, it's over. Brian so Lott those, joining those us. would be the arguments on both sides. Okay. Brian Lott joining us uh, from the NHL Network, former GM of the Tampa Bay Lightning, number one pick, 1983 NHL uh, draft. Uh, I'm going to wrap up with this, and it's a complete curveball that I'm going to throw at you because it's a different game but today than it was when you played. Uh, that said, I know you always respected the role of the enforcer, and you were a skill guy. Uh, I, sometimes, like, I hate the uh, word goon to describe these sort of players. Uh, I use the word enforcer. Um, I think if you've spent any time around an NHL team or even if you grew up playing with guys, you know, I, I grew up playing against Todd Ewan. You know, Todd was pretty damn tough, and but he could play. John Cordick didn't start fighting until he went to junior hockey. He was a pretty decent player uh, growing up in Edmonton here. And where I'm going with this is how much appreciation did you have for the guys that did those? uh, You know, you were number one overall pick. You had guys protect you as well. And maybe you can educate our listeners who sort of look down on that or or maybe the hardcore analytics types that don't think we, you know, that intimidation is part of hockey anymore because – I still think it is at times, and I still think you need a little bit bit of that juice in your lineup. Yeah, you do. Intimidation is different in today's game. It's still a big part of the game. It's just not the way it used to be right. back then. When you know you hear people talking about the game policed itself more, that's true. You know, Dave Semenko, I mean, Willie Plant was, you could say, our goon. He wasn't a goon. Willie's actually a very, very intelligent person like a lot of these guys are right and had a lot to offer as a teammate um but you also appreciated that he rode shotgun for everybody on our team and we had some other tough players dan mandage brad maxwell was a tough player every team had a lot of tough players back then it was a different era but uh, willie plett was one of the most beloved uh players on our team he because scored 30 goals. That he played yeah, he could score. Yeah. And how he handled it. Yeah, he could score. He could play. He could jump up and play on a higher line. 
he could play on the third or fourth line. It didn't matter. Very meaningful player. Most of those guys very well respected. I can't think of two or three guys that were complete jerks that played that role. They were very humble people, uh, very team-orientated, and uh, it had to be way tougher on them than they made it look because I was friends with a lot of these guys. And uh, Brad May tells a great story about after he sucker-punched Kim Janssen where he knew he'd have to fight Derek Bugard. And the way Brad tells it now is the way that I never would have guessed back then. It haunted him for weeks before the game, knowing that he was going to have to answer the bell. These guys have not had an easy uh, life psychologically that way. There's, there's no doubt about it. They may have made, made it look familiar or easy, and I've never heard Marty talk about this McSorley, who looked comfortable doing it, but, boy, I, I'm not so sure anybody was ever that comfortable with that role. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, Janssen got suckered, and it was, I think it was game three. Rob Dom got fired the next day by Doug Reisbrough. I was so angry. His team got pushed around by Anaheim. Uh, and that was it for Dahmer. He had spent two years in Houston in the A and was called up uh, with the uh, the so-called Black Aces, and, and uh, Janssen was knocked out of the playoffs. And May also went after Francois Bouillon and had to face George Laroque as a result in Montreal once. Um I mean, he Brad May's not much bigger than me, Brian. Like he's, I think he's and six. Brad feet. is not the huge man that you maybe have right. in visions of because of the people he fought. It's really incredible. He is just one of the most wonderful people you'll meet too. That's that's not a that's not an uncommon part of this story. Yeah, six foot, maybe two hundred. Now, probably six one, two hundred and five pounds, two ten at his best. Brian, thanks for your time. We'll hook up next week, okay? My pleasure, Bob. Thank you. You bet. It's 152 in Edmonton. We'll step out and come back with this day in Oilers history when we return. This is Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad. Royal Pizza, Pizza Past, and so much more. Edmonton owned and operated for over 50 years. For a menu and a list of their 13 Edmonton and area locations, go online. At royalpizza.ca, download the Royal Pizza app from the App Store, the Stoffer recommendation, the meat lovers at Royal Pizza. You can order and pay online, and then they uh, deliver it to your place. You know how it works now. Whole industry is changing. Going back to 1992, on this date, here's Brendan Escott. Joe Murphy had a hat trick and a helper in a 5-2 Oilers win over Vancouver at Northlands. That gave them a 2-1 series lead in the Smite Division Finals. Billy Ranford outdueled Kirk McLean for the victory in goal. Oilers won that series in six. I was at game six at the Coliseum. A shutout performance from Bill Ranford. And then uh, ultimately, let's see, 92... Uh, they lost to Chicago in four straight. Ran out of steam after that. Uh, of course, Mark Messi left uh, at the uh, fall of uh, 1991 in a trade. A very different uh, Oilers team by that stage. Tonight on Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, what's he rolling with? You're going to hear from former NHLer Scott Hartnell, a Lloyd Minster, Alberta native, as well as Eskimos long snapper Ryan King. We will have the uh, Global News Hour tonight from 6 to 7 tomorrow. Sportsnet color analyst Louis DeBrusque. 
It's a Thursday. It's a big show for us. Brian Burke for our friends at Canadian Power Pack, Alberta's leader in electrical construction service, electrical prefabrication solar, and NHL insider John Shannon, who is kind enough to move today so we could uh, uh, bring aboard Ethan Morrow. I'd like to thank, again, the Oilers for helping make that happen on today's show. Up next, the global news weather traffic update with Eileen Bell. More COVID-19 pandemic coverage throughout the course of the afternoon with 6.30 Chet Afternoons with Jay Lynn Nye. So long, everybody. Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer. Weekdays at noon on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad.